Let me read from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark chapter 8 verses 34 to 38. Is the Bible dangerous? Well, that's my question for tonight. That's what I've been asked to talk to you about. And it's an interesting question to ask of a book. I mean, how can a book like the Bible be dangerous? Can it carry COVID-19 on its pages, maybe? Can it provide fuel for a fire? Uh, which could be dangerous. Can you hit someone over the head with it? Well, I guess the Bible could be dangerous in all of those ways. Um, it's certainly a big book if you want to hit someone over the head with it, but that's probably not the way that most people think of it as a dangerous book. Maybe it's more like, uh, more like this, the Communist Manifesto. The Manifesto of the Communist Party by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. This is a dangerous book. I hope you're not too alarmed to see that I own my own copy of it and have uh, marked it up and uh, read it very carefully. Uh, this book tells us that a spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism, and that through class struggle, we can have a revolution and freedom. Workers of the world unite, it tells us. You have nothing to lose but your chains. In return, of course, on the other side, uh, Animal Farm by George Orwell. This is also a very dangerous book. Animal Farm was, in fact, such a, a biting satire or expose of what life was like under actual communism that it was banned as being too dangerous and subversive by the Stalinist USSR. Dangerous books. Well, is the Bible dangerous? Like Animal Farm? Like the Communist Manifesto? Is it a threat? According to the charity Open Doors, the Bible is considered very dangerous indeed in some places. In North Korea, for example, even having a Bible can get you arrested or killed. An American was detained there for five months simply for leaving a Bible in a restaurant in the hope that a North Korean would find it and read it. It's like he'd left something explosive in that restaurant. And in a sense, he had. Is it because the Bible contains pornographic material like Lady Chatterley's Lover or Ulysses, other books that have been banned because they're somehow dangerous. 
Is that why the Bible faces the censor? Is it dangerous to minors to read the Song of Songs or those obscene chapters of the book of Ezekiel? Or is it that the Bible says some things about our sin, which Western cultures like ours now consider to be offensive and hateful? I think that's more of the issue, isn't it? That's the issue for us. If we believe what the Bible says about sexuality, for example, it's not very comfortable at the moment, is it, in Western society? Secular atheists in the public square who don't believe in God and who don't want to be in God's kingdom will still be massively offended if we say, with the Apostle Paul in here, that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. You can kind of feel how uncomfortable that is, can't you? I mean, if I just say it again, those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a dangerous thing to read out of this book. I can testify to that myself. This week, just this week, I was told on Twitter by angry people that I deserved abuse, I deserved violence, I deserve death. Why? Well, because I am apparently a hate monger and homophobe, because I believe what the Bible says and what the Church of England teaches about sex and marriage, even though I hadn't actually said a word about that this week to provoke such people. It was just my presence leading an online service in which I mentioned none of those controversial things. That was enough to bring out these vitriolic threats. The police uh, logged what had been said against me as a hate incident, motivated by my religion. I've never experienced it this bad before, but I know that I'm certainly not alone. Oh, yes, this is a dangerous book. It's dangerous if you believe it, if you read it out, or if you preach it, because it puts us at odds with the surrounding culture, which may react badly. I mean, that's what happened in the book of Acts, too, isn't it? We read the accounts of what happened when Paul said in Ephesus, gods made with hands are really not gods at all. Have you read the history of the early church? How it was persecuted for hundreds of years because it was at odds with what the ancient world, with its brutal systems of governance and ethics, set. It was at odds with the ancient world and its supposedly tolerant intolerance. Ultimately, have you read what happened to Jesus himself when he lived the perfect life and confronted the powers that be? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you follow this book, that is going to be dangerous for you because people will not like how that makes them feel. But it's also going to be dangerous for you as well, 
because the Bible is not some tame textbook. Christians believe that this is God's word written, the voice of God himself speaking to us. So, of course, the Bible is dangerous because God is dangerous. He is a consuming fire, a roaring lion, the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful judge of the world. That's not safe. That is scary. God is not tame. And so his word is not tame either. I heard once that there was a student who had um, a pet rock. Uh, he kept this pet rock by his bed at night and he'd give it a stroke each night uh, and it would reassure him and give him comfort to know that it was there. And you know some people treat their Bibles in the same way. A pet Bible, to stroke maybe, or just to open at random every now and again to look at some random verses or just to look up some favourite verses that they like every now and then here and there. But this is not a pet. This is a Rottweiler. It's a dragon. It is untamable, and it can cause a revolution in our hearts and in our lives and in our societies if it is unleashed and unbound. No wonder people who don't want to change do not like this book and they try and ban it and silence it. But what if I told you that the Bible is not some time-bound, culturally inappropriate and politically incorrect book? What if it was the word of the living God, the eternal and ever-living God? Well, even then, you might be afraid of it. Many Christians are afraid of the Bible. That's why they don't pick it up and read it. They're afraid of what it will tell them about God and about themselves, what it might demand of them or say about them. Some people, I know, they hold back from becoming Christians at all, or at least from becoming wholehearted Christians, because they're worried that the Bible is going to somehow embarrass them. If I commit to, to following this book, won't that be dangerous for me? How can I make such a commitment when I haven't read it all or, or studied it all in depth yet? Isaiah says in the Old Testament, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the question really is, do we want to be embarrassed now in the eyes of the world or on the day when Jesus comes again in the eyes of its author? Which is it to be? And here's the rub for many people. Committing to Jesus means committing to his word. And that is dangerous right now for us. 
It's always been dangerous, in fact, but because Western society is used to pretend to honour God, at least in theory, it felt dangerous to it felt less dangerous in those days to try and live it out. But it's always been dangerous, really, to follow this book because it is revolutionary. And Jesus's point is this. Yes, my words may cause problems for you in this adulterous and sinful generation. You may be tempted, you will be tempted, to be ashamed of my words. But they are the only sure way to glory. So what do you want? What do you want? A bit of safety and apparent peace in the here and now? Or to risk it all? Follow Jesus and take up his word as your guide. Why should we do that? Why should we do this? Why follow such a dangerous book? And I want to say one thing about that. Just one thing. If you don't hear anything else that I say this evening, I want you to hear this one single important point. Are you ready? I think that you should follow the Bible because Jesus did. That's it. I think you should follow the Bible because Jesus did. You can trust it because Jesus did. Wherever it may lead you, you'll be okay because Jesus did and he's the one in control. And I want to show you that's true just by looking at Jesus and his attitude to the Bible so that even if the Bible does turn out to be horrendously dangerous, we know that we can trust it because Jesus did. The basic definition of a Christian is one who follows Christ. So it is of the utmost importance to us to discover what Christ made of the Bible. But I know that someone might say, um, oh, you follow the Bible. I like to follow Jesus. You follow the Bible. I follow Jesus. Well, of course, the first thing there is, um, which Jesus do you follow exactly? Is it the one that's written about uh, in the Bible? And what if I told you, what if I told you that Jesus followed the Bible too? What if it turned out that Jesus himself was a card-carrying evangelical when it came to his attitude to scripture? Here's the point. Jesus thought that the Bible was true, authoritative and inspired. Jesus thought the Bible was true, authoritative and inspired. So we see in the Gospels that uh, Jesus treated the historical narratives of the Old Testament as straightforwardly records of fact. He refers to Abel, to Noah, to Abraham, to Sodom and Gomorrah, to Isaac and Jacob, the manna in the desert, to King David, Solomon, Jonah and others as if they were all real people and events. He repeatedly refers to Moses and the words that God revealed to him in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The stories which seem least acceptable to so-called modern critical scholars are actually the very ones that Jesus seemed most fond of choosing as his illustrations. 
He also considered the Old Testament to be authoritative. In debates after debates with Pharisees and Sadducees and others, he appealed to Scripture to resolve the debate. He rebukes them for their failure to study the Bible deeply enough. Their mistake was not that they applied the law of God too rigorously. It was that they left undone the weightier matters of the law and focused on the less significant. The overly rational Sadducees are told, you are wrong, Jesus says. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, Matthew 22. The Pharisees are rebuked because they put their traditions above the word of God itself. Even in the smallest details, Jesus trusted the words of the Bible to be accurate, true and authoritative. He wasn't just here accommodating himself to the faulty beliefs of the people of his day about scripture. You know, Jesus, he was perfectly capable of challenging and undermining the beliefs of his day when they needed to be undermined and challenged. Jesus was prepared to face crucifixion for defying the wrong beliefs of his day. No, for him, even when he's debating the devil, the most authoritative words he had to say were, it is written. Jesus was convinced that the words written in scripture were inspired by God, breathed out by God, and not just by human authors. He treated their words as God's words. He would start his counter arguments against these opponents by saying, do you not know what God said? He says that and then he quotes scripture. Matthew 12, Matthew 19, Matthew 21, Matthew 22. History, laws, psalms, prophecies, all of it. One of the most striking places where Jesus does this uh, for me, anyway, it's in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has been asked a question about divorce and marriage. Always controversial, those subjects, marriage and divorce. And he teaches uh, that, quote, the creator made them male and female. And the creator said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. Did you spot that? Did you spot what's so interesting about the way that Jesus puts that? Jesus attributes those words to the creator. We might have thought that they were just comments by the writer of Genesis at the end of chapter two, reflecting on what had happened in the chapter and then telling us that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. But Jesus says, these are the words of the creator himself, the words of God, where we might say the Bible says a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Jesus says these are the words of God. God, the creator, says a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. So. When you start to look at the Gospels, you see that there's this kind of avalanche of cumulative evidence in the Gospels themselves 
that Jesus thought the Bible was true, authoritative and inspired. So for him, the teaching of the Bible was the teaching of the living God. Jesus taught and thought that what the Bible says, God says. Now, what would you make of the New Testament? That's mostly about the Old Testament, isn't it? What would he make of the New Testament? Well, in principle, I think he also authenticated the New Testament. He appointed and trained the apostles who wrote it. After all, he knew that he was going to die, to rise again and then go to be at the right hand of the father. So he deliberately chose and appointed a group of people to continue his teaching. You know, those uh, those great stories at the end of uh, some of the Gospels from after the resurrection, uh, before Jesus ascended into heaven. What do you think he was doing in those days after the resurrection, before he ascended into heaven? Luke says in Luke 24 that Jesus gathered his disciples to him and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, he sat them down and he did in-depth Bible studies with them showing them how the law, the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament all pointed to him. He said, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 47. Now, wouldn't you have just loved to have been in those Bible studies with the resurrected Jesus. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Amazing. Well, you can be, sort of, by studying the words of the apostles who were there, because they interpret the Old Testament the way that Jesus taught them to. They carried on his authoritative teaching and understanding of the scriptures. The early church says that Acts was devoted, uh, sorry, says in Acts that the early church uh, was devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's Acts 2, 42 and uh, chapter 6, verse 2 as well. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and you can see why, because they had been taught by Jesus. And what's more, Jesus had specifically promised that the Holy Spirit would help and guide the apostles, for this very purpose. The Holy Spirit will teach you, he had told them on several occasions, Matthew 10, 19 and 20, Luke 12, 12. In John's Gospel, he says, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, he told the apostles who were gathered around him. Just look at John 14, 26, John 16, verses 12 and 13. So I think we can summarise this by saying Jesus thought that the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, was true, authoritative and inspired. Jesus thought the teaching of the Bible was the teaching of the living God himself. Jesus thought that what the Bible says, God says. 
So we see, I think, that the Apostle Paul is not just making up a new doctrine when he tells his co-worker Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. That was Jesus's doctrine as well. That is what he thought scripture was, God-breathed. And that is what Jesus thought scripture was for, to teach, rebuke, correct and train. And Jesus obviously expected us to listen to his words because he too is divine. No one should be ashamed of me or my words, Jesus said. Now, uh, later on in the Bible, the Apostle Peter says that some people twist the Apostle Paul's words as they do the other scriptures. That's how he says it, as they do the other scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. It's good to have all these 316s, isn't it? John 316. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 2 Timothy 316. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. And 2 Peter 316. Paul is twisted by some people. They twist it to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. It's a verse that reminds us that Paul's words are scripture. Peter recognised that Paul's words and his wisdom from God were on the level of the other apostles and prophets, the prophetic and apostolic scriptures. As indeed Paul himself claims they were revealed to him by God, by Christ. Galatians 1 and 2, Ephesians chapter 3 and so on. The church, the people of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as our cornerstone. But let me just add one other thing on this point. Jesus trusted every word of God in his own experience, too. Jesus trusted every word of God in his own personal experience even to the extreme. In the prophecy about him in Isaiah chapter 53, it says that he will be pierced for our transgressions, that the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. A prophecy about the cross. Jesus knew that that prophecy was about him. He said so. But he would also, therefore, have read Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11. He would read this, though the Lord makes this suffering servant and his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Jesus would also have read this in Psalm 16. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, 
nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. After death, after Sheol, after the abode of the dead, there is safety at the right hand of God and eternal pleasures forevermore. These are verses that Jesus applied to himself and his apostles applied them to Jesus too. Jesus knew them. He trusted them, even to death. He kept his eyes on God and the promises in his word so that even though he knew that that would lead to his death, he knew that. He also knew that there was a promise of life beyond that that he could trust with eternal pleasures at God's right hand. After death, he would see the light of life and be satisfied. And you know, if we follow Jesus and trust him and trust like him in God's unfailing word, then even if following it sometimes seems dangerous in the here and now, we know that ultimately it is the path of life. In the 16th century, William Tyndale was described by some as the most dangerous man in England. Why? Because William Tyndale was busy translating the Bible into English so that ordinary people could read it. He first suggested this, this idea of translating the Bible to the Bishop of London and he asked for the means to make it happen under the auspices of the established church hierarchy. He was not only rebuffed, but when he did finally manage to publish an English New Testament, the bishop led the way in opposing its spread. It was a threat to the stability and the status quo of the country. At first, you know, Tyndale's translation sold quite well as copies secretly made their way into the country from his secret base across the channel. But in February 1526, 36 bishops, abbots and priors stood outside St Paul's Cathedral in London and burned basketfuls of Protestant books, including Tyndale's English New Testament. The Archbishop of Canterbury of the day spent a vast amount of money buying up every copy that he could lay his hands on, but not for distribution to those who were starving for want of the word of God. But in order to destroy them, they were too dangerous. Undaunted by all these seeming setbacks, William Tyndale rejoiced because all that cash from the archbishop actually helped keep him and his smuggling operation alive and enabled him to pay for an improved edition of his English Bible this explosive book. Why did Tyndale risk his life and his livelihood? I had perceived by experience, he said, that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue that they might see the process, order and meaning of the text. I mean, he himself could read the Bible in Hebrew and Greek, 
and he had come to know the liberating truths in it of salvation through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And he longed for his fellow countrymen to see that for themselves in God's word. If only they could read it and understand it in context. A supposedly learned theologian once told Tyndale that it would be better to be without God's laws than to be without the Pope's. So little did they esteem the Bible in those days. Tyndale, full of godly zeal, replied that if God spared him, he would cause a boy that drives the plough to know more of the scriptures than that theologian. These words of eternal life, these words of health, as he called them, could alone bring us into true fellowship with God. The scripture, he said, is a light to show us the true way. And yet the enemies of truth were quenching it with smoky sophistry and tiresome traditions, juggling with the text, as he put it, and expounding it in such a sense as is impossible to gather out of the text if you see the process, order and meaning of it yourself. That is what moved him to translate the Bible. If people cannot read and then check it all for themselves, what they're being told about salvation by the ecclesiastical authorities or by the world, then they are wide open to deception and to what is now known as fake news. Once they see the authentic word with their own eyes and hear it with their own ears in their own language, well, only then can they detect a fraud more easily and quickly. So Tyndale was motivated by a love for lost sheep and a desire to protect them from wolves. These false prophets, he said, were beguiling churchgoers with their dodgy interpretations of the Bible, contrary to the actual meaning of the text. He said that they were, they were twisting the scripture violently unto their carnal and fleshly purpose. They were persecuting others by defending their lewd imaginations and fantasies in order to satisfy their filthy lusts. If only people could read the Bible for themselves, he said, they would see how outrageous such wolfish tyranny was. The Bible was a dangerous book. Tyndale himself was strangled and then burned at the stake for translating it into our language so that we could read it. For him, the Bible turned out to be a very dangerous book indeed. This is the book that Jesus read and loved and quoted and trusted himself. Because as the Proverbs say, every word of God proves true. It is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Proverbs 30 verse 5. Yes, the Bible is a threat to stability and to the status quo of your life and mine. It is a threat. It is dangerous. Following this book is not going to be comfortable, but the truth will set you 
free. Workers of the world are exhorted to uh, unite and put away their chains by the communist manifesto. Communists of the world are urged to resist and overthrow their corrupt systems by Animal Farm, by George Orwell. Well, let me say to you now, Christians of the world, unite and read your Bibles. You have nothing to lose except the chains of ignorance, sin and hell. Jesus said the truth will set you free and his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path every step of the way. Yes, it is dangerous, but nothing worth doing in this life is ever easy or comfortable. I invite you to take a deep breath, embrace the danger and dive in. You can bet your life on it because Jesus did. <laughs>